Don't think about the next time Just think about now You know The only way that we grow Is when we let the world know It's all about love If ever this world could use a little love And it's right about now Let's turn it into something Happy holidays to you Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, one and all, back to the Stew Effect here on Anchor FM and Spotify. I'm Stuart Myers. We are Saturday, December 26th, 2020. And uh, happy holidays, my friends. That fantastic song that you heard to open the show is called Happy Holidays. It's a new song by Glass Tiger and Rock Voisin. Yes, Montreal's Rock Voisin. 
If you watch the Andy Kim Christmas special, which re-aired uh, Thursday night, Christmas Eve, uh, you would have seen that song because Rock was in and Glass Tiger performed that song. Fantastic song. As I said, we are December the 26th, 2020. That means Boxing Day in Canada and in Quebec. However, this Boxing Day is an unusual Boxing Day as uh, we are in the midst of a, tw- a 18-day lockdown. So uh, the all the sales are online, and we'll get to that in a moment. We've got a great show coming up for you, all you need to know in news and sports. And, of course, we're going to take a look because next month marks the 26th anniversary of the not guilty verdict in the O.J. Simpson case. And we'll explore the faithful night and the case coming up. Uh, But first, what you need to know in news and sports, give you a little update, uh, sports update as it stands now in the NFL football. The Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers are crushing the Detroit uh, Lions in the th- in the start of the third quarter, 40 to nothing. We'll have the updated score in sports. But first, here is what you need to know. As almost all of Quebec entered into a new lockdown on Christmas Day, no data on the new COVID-19 cases and deaths in the province were made public. On the Quebec National Institute of Public Health website, a message was posted saying updated statistics on the virus would not be available from December 25th to 27th, as well as January 1st to January 3rd. The latest statistics on the Quebec Health Ministry website are from Thursday. The lack of new data comes at the end of a week where Quebec repeatedly set new records for the amount of new cases of COVID-19 per day. It also comes on the first day of an 18-day lockdown in which almost all businesses will be forced to close their doors to the public and almost all office workers will be required to work from home. As hospitalizations due to COVID-19 continue to rise, an expert opinion says the hospitals in Montreal could become overrun by mid-January. The Institut National d'Excellence en Santé et en Services Sociaux wrote this week that Montreal and neighboring regions are seeing increased cases five times greater than in other areas of Quebec. Montreal averaged uh, 759 daily novel coronavirus cases for the week leading up to Christmas and recorded 3,788 total deaths as of December 24th. Quebec is not releasing its daily updates on uh, on this uh, on the stats of the pandemic uh, Saturday. The INESSS reported the greatest increase in cases in the high-risk demographic of those age 80 or over, and the, that the number of planned hospitalizations has increased more than 50% over the past month. For Montreal and its neighboring regions, the number is more than double and now represents nearly two-thirds uh, of the projected hospitalizations in Quebec. The Institute adds between December 14th and 20th, 717 cases out of the new ones are at a high risk of hospitalizations, 19% more than the previous week. The Institute adds, however, that the projections do not take into account the restrictions Quebec put in place December 25th that run until January 11th. As of December 24th, there were 1,052 people receiving treatment in Quebec hospitals for COVID-19, including 146 people in the intensive care ward. Well, a new variant of the virus that causes COVID-19 that first surfaced in the UK and has since been found in several other countries is likely in Canada, a health expert says. Uh, to curb the spread of COVID-19, the Quebec government, um, yeah, so 
that's what the person said. To curb the spread of COVID-19, the government of Quebec ordered all non-essential businesses to close their doors until uh, July, uh, June 11th, uh, sorry, January 11th. And uh, we'll have the list of all uh, non-essential services um, right now. So the following, uh, rather essential services, so the following are those businesses that are considered essential. Uh, grocery stores and other food stores, drug stores only for everyday essentials, hardware stores only for products required to carry our out ex exterior maintenance, repairs, or construction, service stations, animal feed and school and supply stores, work-related safety and protective equipment stores, commercial enterprises that sell products, parts, and other material necessary for transportation and logistics services and vehicle repair or maintenance, including vehicle repair and maintenance centers, but excluding the sale of vehicles, big box stores, and other sale areas offering customers a wide variety of categories of products, including food, drugstore, and hardware products. No toys, clothing, books, electronic devices, decor items, cookware, and electronic household appliances. Convenience stores, including tobacco stores that are not specialized in tobacco sales outlets. Florists, farm product uh, stores, medical, orthopedic, and eye care supply stores. Stores situated in post-secondary establishments offering material required specifically for classes in the establishment, specialized janitorial and building product stores, the SAQ stores, the SQDC stores for repairs and rentals, non-priority retail stores that offer computer and electronic equipment repair services, stores that offer repair or equipment rental services and sports and outdoor recreation equipment, the healthcare services, dentists, optometrists, physiotherapists, massage therapists, Osteopaths and other professional healthcare services are allowed. For more information on the restrictions, visit the government site and the Montreal uh, uh, police. The SPVM are asking citizens who see people violating health measures to use the online form to report offenses. And a team of uh, about a dozen people at the Welcome Hall Mission spent Christmas putting together the shelter's annual Christmas meals, which featured balanced plates of soup, zucchini and pork, or garlic beef soup and mushrooms, among other combinations. The mission, putting together gourmet holiday meals for the needy, is a tradition. But this year, the dining experience won't be quite the same. Some 600 meals are being delivered using a refrigeration truck the shelter bought as the pandemic began. The key consideration for the truck for delivering food is the safety of the food, said Welcome Hall CEO Sam Watts. We take we take safety very seriously. The truck has it has uh, has its work cut out for it. As many places many places housing homeless people have changed around since the pandemic began. It makes deliveries to places like the shelter at the site of the former hotel at Place du Puy, the Mission's Acom Street shelter, and the shelter at the former site of the Royal Victoria Hospital. Despite the pandemic, Welcome Home Mission in 2020 has served more than people in more ways than every uh, never before. As in 120-year history, thanks to the incredible generosity of our donors and partners and the energy and devotion of our incredible staff and volunteers, Watts said. It's the post-Christmas shopping day deal hunters have been waiting for. But with non-essential retail, sh uh, retail shuttered or restricted across much of the country, the usual crowded malls and long lineups of Boxing Day are expected to be replaced with internet searches and online orders. Quebec Ontario's province-wide lockdown began today. Join Quebec and Manitoba in closing non-essential uh, retail, which much of the rest of the country has curtailed in store capacity. Despite the restrictions forcing most shopping online, industry watchers say retailers are still expected to offer some deep discounts in a bid to raise cash. Uh, Farla Efros, president of the HRC 
Retail advisory said there'll be a fire sale prices on some items. She says retailers don't want to get stuck with a backlog of holiday and season inventory and also need to shore up their balance sheets in the face of mounting lockdowns and restrictions. Meantime, uh, Joan Daughtry, who served for eight years as a Quebec MA, died last Friday at 93 from complications related to COVID-19. Born, born in Montreal, Daughtry held degrees from McGill University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She spent eight years as a commissioner on a president school board and also served on McGill's board of governors. She was first elected to the National Assembly after running as a liberal in the West Island writing uh, of Jacques Cartier in 1981. She was re-elected in 1985 and was nominated parliamentary assistant to the education minister until her defeat in the 1989 election. After her political career ended, Daughtry had various positions in the education field. Daughtry is survived by five children, seven grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren. Her funeral will be held at a later date. And some regions of Quebec are facing the possibility of a very unwelcome Christmas gift in the form of floods. Heavy rainfall and historic warm spell spelled a spell resulted in several rivers threatening to overflow, leading to evacuations on L'Ile Enchantresse just before noon. It's last minute. We don't have details for the moment on the number of people who are targeted by the, the evacuation. It's a public health official, Steve Bovin. Meantime, a man is recovering in hospital after being stabbed on Boxing Day in Montreal. 911 call came in. Um, to Montreal to the SPBM shortly after 7 a.m. after a 35-year-old man was stabbed in the residence at Montreal's Southwest Borough. Officers arrived at the residence on Sebastian Street and found the man conscious with a stab wound to his upper body. He is transported to the hospital and remains in stable condition. Police said spokesperson Caroline Chaffry says the victim knew the alleged attacker who fled the scene before police arrived. A police investigation is continuing. At the moment, we still don't know the circumstances of the event. Chevrefi said the investigation is ongoing and officers will speak to the victim once his health stabilizes. And um, Academy Award uh, winning actress Halle Berry took to Instagram to bestow her own bit of adjudication of a, a best in a particular category on Saturday when she named the hot wings from Cunningham Pub in St. Anne de Bellevue on Montreal's West Island some of the best damn wings I've ever tasted. I mean, one of my favorite things and and... This is the hot wing, she said in her post on Christmas Day. There's no food I love more than a good hot wing. Berry then said that when working on the film Moonfall in Montreal, she and stunt coordinator Patrick Curtin were chatting about food, and he said, Cunningham's pub's wings are best in the city. I was like, what? This is a big statement, and Berry said, so, well, okay, I, you've, got a, you've got the best wings in Montreal that I'm going to need to try because I'm the best connoisseur in Montreal of hot wings right now, so let me try them. It seems Keaton has been a fan of the wings for a while. He posted an Instagram photo in 2008 with a tray of Cunningham's wings while he was on the set of X-Men Dark Phoenix. Barry and Curtin, Barry said Curtin wasn't lying. Cunningham's, like all restaurants and pubs on the island, is closed due to COVID-19 restrictions, but is open for delivery or pickup. If you're within 100 miles of Montreal, please go try Cunningham, said Barry. Do yourself a favor. Moonfall is scheduled for a release in 2021. And the residential island of Momonasi River is often hit by spring floods. Uh, the island, yeah, like we had said. Um, let's just see here. The, uh, and here's some uh, Christmas news. Actually, we're going to take a little break. We'll be back with um, how people spent their Christmas in different parts of the world. And then what's, uh, then what is, uh, you need to know in sports. So we'll be back on the Stu Effect in just a moment. 
We are back on what you need to know here on the Stew Effect. And here is what happened on Christmas Day with curfews, quarantines, and even border closings uh, compli uh, complicating Christmas celebrations on Friday for countless people around the globe. But ingenuity, determination, and imagination helped keep this day special for many. In Beijing, official churches abruptly canceled mass on Christmas Day in a last-minute move after China's capital was put on high alert following the confirmation of two confirmed COVID-19 cases last week and two new asymptomatic cases were reported on Friday. One of seven uh, notices was posted, on, or posted at Beijing St. Joseph's Church, which was built originally by Jesuit missionaries in the 17th century. Border Crossing closures kept thousands of migrants from economically devastated Venezuela who live in Colombia from going home for Christmas. Colombia's government shut down the crossings in a bid to slow down the spread of COVID-19 infections. Those trying to return home for the holidays this year had to turn to smugglers. Jacqueline Temuri, a nurse who left Venezuela two years ago, won't be going home and said that there will be no gifts or new clothes for her two, for her two children aged 10 and 15. Amor said that she hasn't been able to find work as a nurse because she still doesn't have a Colombian residence permit. Her parents are still in Venezuela. She says her mother broke her foot and can't walk properly, so she's worried about her. She's tried to send money, but it's not the same as being there. Others successful crossed uh, borders elsewhere only to find themselves in quarantine for their first Christmas since getting name married in March. Natasuda Anusandise and uh, Patrick Kaplan are cooped up in quarantine in Bangkok hotel room. It wasn't great fun, but they didn't make sure to get a Christmas tree. They returned earlier this month from a four-and-a-half-month trip to Canada and the United States, making a 32-hour journey from Montreal via Doha on condition of entering Thailand is a 14-day quarantine upon arrival. The citizens can stay at state facilities for free, but foreigners like Kaplan from Canada must pay to stay at an approved hotel. The option the couples took so they could stay together. And churches in South Korea, or churches in South Korea have ignited clusters of coronavirus infections in densely populated Seoul, along with hospitals, nursing homes, restaurants, and prisons. The 12, the 1,241 new daily cases reported by the Korean Disease Control and Prevention Agency on Friday was recorded for the country. It's Christmas, the Daily Nation newspaper declared in Kenya when a second surge in cases has eased and a brief doctor's strike ended on Christmas Eve. Celebrations were muted in East Africa, its commercial hub, as overnight church vigil, uh, vigils could not be held because of the curfew. Fewer people also reportedly headed home to see families, which could help limit the spread of the virus in the uh, rural communities, which are even less equipped to handle COVID-19 than cities. In Paris, members of the Notre Dame Cathedral's choir wearing hard hats and protective suits, not against COVID-19, but for construction conditions in the medieval landmark ravaged by a fire in 2009, sang inside the church for the first time since the blaze. In a special Christmas concert event, accompanied by an acclaimed cellist and a rented organ, the socially distant singers performed beneath the cathedral stained glass windows amid the darkened church, which is transitioning from being a hazardous cleanup operation to becoming a massive reconstruction site. The public was not allowed in and isn't expected to see the interior of the Notre Dame until at least 2024. In Rome, partial lockdown measures were uh, keeping the faithful from gathering in St. Peter's Square, where in past years, tens of thousands would receive a papal blessing and hear the Pope's traditional Christmas Day message. 
but they wouldn't have been able to see Pope Francis anyway this year. In response to virus resurgence in Italy, the pontiff wasn't appearing on the cathedral balcony of St. Peter's Basilica this Christmas, but opted to deliver his annual address on world issues from inside the uh, apostolic palace. Elsewhere, uh, elsewhere, Christmas was difficult. Thousands of drivers were stranded in their trucks at the English port of Dover, lacking uh, the coronavirus test that France was now demanding. The elderly, meanwhile, uh, struggled with the virus travel restrictions that kept them from visiting family and friends over the holidays. The solitude gets to me these days. I often feel depressed, said Alvaro Pew, an 81-year-old in Spain who spent Christmas Eve eating dinner alone with his pet rabbit. Those ho These holidays, instead of making me happy, make me sad, he says. He hates them. We'll be back with... Uh, what you need to know in sports, of course, the World Juniors uh, football recap from yesterday, and of course, a updated score on the uh, the Tom Brady Buccaneers um, destroyance of the Detroit Lions. It's 40 to six now for Tampa Bay with 9:38 remaining in the third quarter. Back with what you need to know in sports in just a moment. Y'all ready for this? And we are back with what you need to know in sports. World Juniors Boxing Day action from the bubble in Edmonton has defending champion Canada kicking off their tournament in the Group A matchup against Germany. Um, but before that, the Swedes will take on the Czech Republic. Like the Germans, COVID-19 nearly derailed Sweden's journey to Edmonton, losing head coach Thomas Monten and four key players, William Eklund, Carl Henriksen, William Wallander and Albin Gru to positive tests and having two staff members test positive in the bubble. The Swedes didn't play a pre-tournament game due to the quarantine. COVID-19 aside, the reigning bronze medalist Sweden brings a strong roster to Edmonton as they look to keep their round-robin streak of 51 consecutive victories alive, led by two top 10 picks in forwards Lucas Raymond, uh, fourth overall in Detroit, and Alexander Holt, seventh overall in New Jersey. Sweden will not have trouble scoring on the back end, and they are led by Edmonton Oilers prospect Philip Broberg, Arizona Coyotes first-rounder Victor Soderstrom, and Los Angeles first-round pick Tobias Bjornfoot in net. They boast Hugo Alnefeld, Tampa Bay Lightning, and 2021 draft-eligible Jesper Wallstead. The Czech Republic finished seventh in last year's tournament after bowing out to Sweden with a 5-0 loss in the quarterfinals. The Czechs will be led by Montreal Canadiens prospect Jan Mysak with Michael Tepley of the Chicago Blackhawks and Adam Raska of the San Jose Sharks also expected to have big roles in their pre-competition match. They defeated Slovakia 6-0. Now, with, a, with, with 19 NHL first-round picks and six returning players in the roster, Canada brings a deep roster to the World Junior Championship as they aim to defend their gold medal. But they were dealt a huge blow before things really got going. In Canada's first and only pre-tournament game against Russia, Captain Kirby Dutch delivered what looked like to be an innocent body check in the neutral zone in the third period. However, right after the impact, it was clear that something was wrong. Dash was removed, uh, removed his glove, generally skated to the bench, and did not return. Canada <clears throat> announced Dash would not play in the tournament the following day because of a right wrist injury. Headlined by returning players Quinn uh, Byfield, Dylan Cozens, Connor McMichael, Dawson Mercier, Bowen 
Byram, and James Drysdale, Canada has a myriad of options up and down the roster. Canada defeated Russia 1-0 Wednesday night in a rematch of last year's gold medal final. They will take on Ottawa Senators third overall pick Tim Stulzel and Team Germany, who opened the tournament on Christmas Day against Finland. The Germans are undergoing underdogs again in the tournament, but the presence of Stul, uh, Stuzil and Buffalo Sabres second-rounder John Jason Peter, uh, Paterka could be the difference marker or maker, rather, in avoiding another shutdown in the regulation round. And the United States beat Finland in pre-competition 3-2 with a stand-up performance from Montreal Canadiens prospect Cole Caulfield, who had two goals in a 35-second span. The Americans look to rebound after finishing sixth in 2020 and will be relying heavily on the likes of Trevor Zegras, Spencer Knight, Jake Sanderson, Alex Turcotte, and the aforementioned Caulfield to carry them to gold. On the other side is Austria, who entered the top division of the World Juniors for the first time since 2010. Coming in as major underdogs, the Austrians have a legitimate star on their side with Minnesota Wild ninth overall pick, Marco Rossi, leading the way. And in their only pre-competition game, Austria dropped the 3-2 decision to Switzerland. In football news, Alvin Kamara tied an NFL record by running for six touchdowns in a game and finishing with a career-high 155 yards rushing to help the New Orleans Saints beat the Minnesota Vikings 52-33 on Friday and clinching a fourth straight NFC South title. Wearing different color shoes, one red and one green on Christmas Day, Kamara sprinted for a 40-yard touchdown on the game's opening drive, he added scoring runs of 1, 5, 6, 7, and 3 yards against at Minnesota defense front hit hard by injuries. Kamara equaled a record set by Hall of Fame fullback Ernie Nevers in 1929 for the Chicago Cardinals. And um, <clears> there <throat> was a great day. He says we got our first division title and going to take it from there. Minnesota was eliminated from playoff contention while allowing the most points by any Vikings team since 1963. The Saints never punted and set a record of yards gained in a game by Vikings opponents with 583. They might have won by a greater margin if not for a pair of interceptions of Drew Brees, one of them on a pass that deflected off receiver Emmanuel Sanders' hands. Brees completed 19 of 26 throws for 311 yards in his second comeback from rib and lung injuries that had sidelined him for four games. His second game back, Sanders had four catches for 83 yards, while tight end Jared Cook caught three passes for 82 yards. New Orleans' 264 yards rushing were the most by a Vikings opponent in head coach Mike Zimmer's seven seasons. New Orleans native Irv Smith Jr. caught a pair of uh, touchdown passes in the third quarter for the Vikings, the second pulling Minnesota to 31-27, but the Saints responded with two short touchdown runs by Kamara and one by reserved quarterback Tyson Hill in the fourth quarter to, to put the game out of reach. Kurt Cousins, meantime, passed for 283 yards and three touchdowns for the Vikings, who never... Uh, led, and, led and trailed for good after Kamara's second touchdown in the first quarter. In a game that saw both defenses struggle, Saints receiver Marquise Calloway made a play in that any defensive back would appreciate when he prevented Eric Wilson from intercepting a pass. Breeze, uh, Breeze thrown right in, at the linebacker. Breeze took advantage of the second chance, hitting Calloway for 11 yards and on the next play and then finding Cook for a 19-yard gain to the Vikings' sixth. That set up Kamara's third touchdown run of the half to put New Orleans up 21-17. And in injuries, the Vikings, Minnesota did not report any injuries, but for the Saints, uh, left back 
Kawan Alexander injured his right ankle late in the third quarter. He was initially helped off the field, but later took a cart from the sideline to the locker room. Up next for the Vikings, they will visit the Detroit uh, Lions on January 3rd, the final Sunday of the regular season. Saints visit Carolina on January 3rd. The Vikings better watch because the Detroit Lions may want to have some payback because right now it is 46-7 to for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers over the Detroit Lions. Tom Brady is rocking it. Tom Brady is uh, thrown for 348 yards so far, 22 completions on 27 attempts. Chase Daniel not doing so well for Detroit. Mike Evans, two touchdowns for Tampa Bay. And that's what you need to know in sports. We'll keep you updated on the Tampa Bay game as the show goes on. Back with a take on life. OJ Simpson. Back in a moment. And we are back on the stew effect. And before we get to our take on life segment about O.J. Simpson, I just want to remind you to tune in to the stew effect this Thursday at uh, Thursday, December 31st for our recap of 2020. A look back at 2020, a very tough year. Uh, we will look back at the top news stories of 2020. We will uh, honor the... Uh, the people who have passed on in 2020 and look at the biggest stories in sports and news. So don't forget to tune in this Thursday, December 31st, 2020, New Year's Eve, for a special look back at 2020. Now, for our take on life, we're going to look at O.J. Simpson, the background leading up to the murders, the prosecution case, the defense case. So here we go. O.J. Simpson, a look back. Nicole Brown met O.J. Simpson in 1977 when she was 18 and working as a waitress at the Daisy, a Beverly Hills private club. Simpson was married, but the two began dating. Simpson filed for divorce in March 1979 and married Brown on February 2, 1985. Their marriage lasted seven years and produced two children, Sidney, born 1985, and Justin, born 1988. Brown filed for divorce on February 25, 1992, citing irreconcilable differences. According to Dr. Lenore Walker, the Simpson-Brown marriage was a textbook example of domestic abuse. Brown signed a prenuptial agreement and was then prohibited from working while married. She wrote that she felt conflicted about notifying the police of the abuse because she was financially dependent on him. Nicole described an incident in which Simpson broke her arm during a fight, but she lied and told the emergency room that she had fallen off her bike to protect Simpson from being arrested. She wrote about Simpson beating her in public during sex, uh, public during sex, and even in front of the family and friends. Of the 62 incidents of abuse, the police were notified eight times, and Simpson was arrested once. Brown said Simpson was stalking and harassing her after they divorced. This behavior is an intim intimidation tactic meant to force the victim to return to the abuser. Brown documented an incident where Simpson spied on her having sex with her new boyfriend. Afterwards, Brown said she felt her life was in danger because Simpson had said he would kill her if he ever found her with another man. She also drafted a will for herself as well. The woman's shelter 
uh, Sojourn received a call from Brown four days prior to the, her murder. She was considering going there because she was afraid of what Simpson might do because she was refusing to displease to reconcile their marriage and had reported a missing set of keys to her house a few weeks ago. They were later found on Simpson when he was arrested. A few months before the murder, Simpson completed a film pilot for Frogman in Adventures series similar to the A-Team. Simpson played the lead role of Bullfrog Burke, who led a group of former U.S. Navy SEALs. He received a fair amount of military training, including use uh, use of knives for Frogman, and holds a knife to the throat of a woman, playing the role of his daughter in one scene. A 25-minute tape of the pilot, which did not include the knife scene, was found by investigators and watched on Simpson's television as they searched his house. The defense tried to block its use on the grounds on the grounds, but Judge Ido allowed the tape to be shown. However, the prosecution never introduced it as evidence. During the trial, it was reported that among the skills of the character of Bullfrog Burke was night killings and the silent kill technique of slashing the throat. And that, that seals regularly wear knit caps like the one found at the scene. The Navy calls these watch caps. And on Brown's last evening alive, she attended Sydney's dance recital at Paul Revere a middle school with her family. Simpson also att- also att- attended. The family then went to eat at the Mezzaluna restaurant, and Simpson was not invited. Goldman was a waiter at uh, the Mezzaluna, uh, though he was not assigned to Brown's table. He and Brown became close friends in the weeks before the deaths. After eating at Mezzaluna, Brown and her children went to Ben and Jerry's before returning home. Karen Lee Crawford, the manager of Ms. Luna recounted that Brown's mother phoned the restaurant at 9.37 p.m. about a pair of lost eyeglasses. Crawford found them and put them in a white envelope. Goldman left the restaurant at 9.50 after his shift to return the glasses by dropping them off at Brown's house. Simpson ate takeout food from McDonald's with Cato Kalin, a bit part actor and famous family friend who had been given the use of a guest house on the Simpson estate. Rumors circulated that Simpson had been on drugs at the time of the murder, and the New York Post's Cindy Adams reported that the pair had actually gone to a local Burger King, where a prominent drug dealer known as J.R. had admitted to selling them crystal meth. Now, the timeline of the murders. At 12.10 a.m. on June 13, 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were found murdered outside of Nicole's Bundy Drive condominium in Brentwood, Los Angeles. Both victims had been Dead about two hours prior to the arrival of police, the defense and the prosecution agreed that the murders took place sometime between 10.15 and 11 p.m. Nicole's Akita dog with bloodstained paws led neighbors to the body. Stephen Schweb testified that while he was walking his dog in the area near Brown's house at around 11.30, he noticed that Brown's Akita dog had bloody paws but was uninjured. Schwab said he took the dog to a neighbor friend who took the dog for a walk approximately at 12 midnight and testified that it tugged on its leash and led them to Brown's house. There, he discovered Brown's dead body and flagged down a passing patrol car. Brown was found face down and barefoot at the bottom of the stairs leading uh, to the front door, which was left open with no signs of forced entry, nor any evidence that anyone had entered the premises. The scene had a large amount of blood, but the bottom of Brown's feet were clean. Then the investigators conclude she was murdered first and then, sh- and that she was the intended target. She had been stabbed multiple times in the head and neck, but had few defensive wounds in her hands, which implied a shorter struggle to investigators. The final cut was deep in her neck, severing her carotid artery. Brown did have a large bruise at the center of her back, so investigators concluded that after the assailant had killed Goldman, he returned to Brown's body, put his foot on her back, causing the bruise, pulled her neck back by the hair, and slit her throat. 
Her larynx could be seen through the gaping wound in her neck, and vertebrae C3 was incised. Her head remained barely attached to the body. Goldman lay nearby, close to a tree and, and the fence. He had been stabbed uh, multiple times in the body and neck, but like Brown, had relatively few defensive wounds, which are also significant, uh, significant of a short struggle to investigators. Forensic evidence from the Los Angeles County coroner alleged Goldman had been attacked and stabbed repeatedly in the neck and chest with one hand, uh, the assailant, well, the one hand the assailant restrained him with an arm choke, chokehold. Near Goldman's were assailant's blue knit cap and left hand glove, and an extra large, extra large iris stoner light leather glove and an envelope containing the glasses he was returning. Bloody shoe prints leaving the scene through the back gate were left by the assailant. To the left of some footprints were drops of blood from the assailant, who was apparently bleeding from the left hand. Measuring the distance between the steps showed the assailant walking, uh, walked away rather than ran. Simpson was scheduled for a red-eye flight at 11.45 p.m. to Chicago to play golf the following day at a convention with representatives of Hotel Hertz Rental Car Corporation from whom he was a spokesman. Limousine driver Alan Park was scheduled to pick him up and take him to the Los Angeles airport and he arrived early at around 10.25. He drove down around Simpson's estate to make sure he could navigate the area with the stretched limousines properly and testified he did not see Simpson's Ford Bronco parked outside. Park testified that he had been looking for and had seen the house number on the curb, and the prosecution presented exhibits to show that the position in which the, the Bronco was found the next morning was right next to the house number, implying that Park would surely have noticed the Bronco if he had been there at that time. The limo driver parked outside the Ashford Street gate and drove back to Rockingham Gate to check which driveway would have the best access for the limo. Deciding that the Rockingham entrance was too tight, he returned to Ashford Gate and began to buzz the intercom at 1040, getting no response and no response. He noted that, he was that, that the house was dark and nobody appeared to be home as he smoked a cigarette and made several calls to his boss to get Simpson's home phone number. He then testified he saw a shadow resembling Simpson emerge from the area where the Bronco was later found to be parked and approached the front entrance before aborting and heading towards the south southern walkway. The same person then appeared shortly afterwards in the south walkway and entered the house through the front door, and the lights came on. At the same time, Park witnessed a shadowy figure heading towards the south walkway where the bloody glove would later be found. Cato Kalin had just previously been on the telephone with his friend, Rachel Ferreira. At approximately 10.50, something crashed into his wall, which he described as three thumps, and which he feared was an earthquake. Kalen hung up the phone and ventured outside to investigate the noises, but decided not to venture directly down the south pathway from which the thumps had originated. Instead, he walked to the front of the property where he saw Park's limo outside the Ashford Gate. Kalen led Park in the Ashford Gate, and Simpson finally came out the front door a few minutes later, claiming he had overslept. Both Park and Kalen would later testify that Simpson seemed agitated that night. Park noted that on the way to the airport, Simpson complained about how hot it was and was sweating and rolled down the window despite it not being a warm night. Park also testified that he loaded four luggage bags into the car that night, with one of them being a knapsack that Simpson would not let Park touch, insisting he loaded he he loaded it himself. James Williams, a porter at LA National Airport, testified that Simpson only checked three bags at LAX that night, and police and police the police determined that the missing luggage was the same knapsack Park had mentioned earlier. Another witness not used at the trial, Skip Junis, claimed he saw Simpson at the airport discarding items from a bag into the trash can. Detectives Lang and Van Adder believe this is how the murder weapon, shoes, and clothes that Simpson wore during the murder were disposed. 
Simpson was running late but caught his flight. A passenger on the phone and the pilot testified that to not noticing any cuts or wounds on Simpson's hands. A broken glass and bed sheets with blood on them were re recovered from Simpson's hotel room at the O'Hara Plaza Hotel. Peter Phillips, the former manager of the hotel, recalled Simpson asking for a Band-Aid for his finger at the front desk. Of course, soon after discovering the female victim of Nicole was Nicole Simpson, they uh, they ordered detectives Lang, Vanatter, Phillips, and Furman to notify Simpson of her death and give him a ride to pick up his children, and uh, who had been in Nicole's condo at the time of the murders, and were at the police station. They buzzed the intercom and, and the property for over 30 minutes, but received no response. They noted the Bronco was parked at Rockingham at an awkward angle, with his back out more than the front, and had blood on the door, which they feared meant someone inside might be hurt. Detective Vanatter then instructed Furman to scale the wall and unlock the gate to allow the three detectives to enter. The detectives would argue that they entered without a search warrant because of exigent circumstances, specifically out of the fear that someone might be injured. And uh, on Friday, June 17th, detective recommended that Simpson be charged with two counts of first-degree murder and special circumstances of multiple killings after the final DNA results came back. The LAPD notified Shapiro at 8.30 a.m. on Friday that Simpson would have to surrender that day. At 9.30 a.m., Shapiro went to Kardashian's home to tell Simpson that he would have to surrender by 11 a.m., an hour after the murder charges were filed. Simpson told Shapiro he wanted to surrender himself, to which the police agreed, believing someone as famous as Simpson would not attempt to flee. The police even agreed to delay his surrender until 12 so Simpson could be seen by a mental health specialist after showing signs of suicidal depression. He updated his will, called his mother and children, and wrote three sealed letters, one to his children, another to his mother, and one to the public. More than 1,000 reporters waited for Simpson's perp walk at the police station, but he did not arrive, as stipulated. The LAPD then notified Shapiro that Simpson would be arrested at Kardashian's home. Kardashian and Shapiro told Simpson this, but when the police arrived an hour later, Simpson was gone, along with Al Cowings. The three sealed letters he had written with were left behind at 150. Commander David Gaskin, LAPD's chief spokesman, publicly declared that Simpson was a fugitive. The police issued an all-points all bulletin for him and an arrest warrant for Cowlings. And at 5 p.m., Kardashian and one of his defense attorneys read Simpson's public letter. In the letter, Simpson sent greetings to 24 friends and wrote, For everyone, understand I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. He described the fights with Brown and the decision not to reconcile as normal in a long relationship and asked the media as a last wish not to bother his children. He wrote to then-girlfriend Paula Barberi, I'm sorry, we're going to have our chance as a... Uh, we're not going to have our chance as I leave. You'll be in my thoughts. It also included, I can't go on, and an apology to the Goldman family. The letter concluded, don't feel sorry for me. I had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. Most interpretations interpreted this as a suicide note. Simpson's by the units collapsed after hearing it, and reporters joined the search for Simpson. At Kardashian's press conference, Shapiro said that he and Simpson's psychiatrist agreed with the suicide note interpretation. Through television, Shapiro appealed to Simpson to surrender. And we'll be back with the more of the O.J. Simpson case, the Bronco chase, and the, um, the trial. And we'll hear the prosecution case and uh, their timeline, and as well as the defense case and their uh, timeline in just a moment. We will be back in just a moment on... Stew effect. And back with a take on life, the O.J. Simpson case. 
So the Bronco Chase. News helicopters searched the Los Angeles highway system for Cowling's white Ford Bronco. Cowling's and Simpson had uh, both had white Broncos. At 5.51 p.m., Simpson reportedly called 911. The call was traced to the Santa Ana Freeway near Lake Forest. At around 6.20 p.m., a motorist in Orange County notified California Highway Patrol after seeing Simpson, someone believed to be Simpson riding the Bronco in the Bronco on I-15 freeway heading north, um, driven by Cowlings. The police tracked calls placed from Simpson on his cell phone, and at 6.45 p.m., police officer Ruth Dixon saw the Bronco heading head north on Interstate 405 when she caught up to it. Cowlings yelled out that Simpson is in the back seat of the vehicle and had a gun to his own head. The officer backed off but followed the vehicle at 35 miles per hour with up to 20 police cars following her in the chase. Zoe Tur of KCBS-TV was the first to find Simpson from a news helicopter after colleagues heard the FBI's mobile phone tracking had located him at the El Toro Y. More than nine news helicopters eventually joined the pursuit. Knowing the Cowlings was listening to KNXAM, sports announcer Peter Arbogast called Simpson's former UFC football coach, John McKay, and connected him to Simpson. As both men wept, Simpson told McKay, okay, coach, I won't do anything stupid, I promise. Off the air, there's no doubt in my mind that McKay stopped OJ from killing himself in the back of the Bronco. McKay, uh, McKay reiterated on radio his pleas, Simpson to turn himself in and instead of committing suicide. And um, uh, may God, we love you, Juice, just pull over and I'll come out and stand by you all the rest of my life. Walter Payton, Vince Evans, and other from around the country also pleaded with Simpson over the radio to surrender. At Parker Center, after discussing how to pursue Simpson to surrender peacefully, Detective Tom Lang, who had interviewed Simpson about the murders on June 13th, realized that he had Simpson's cell phone number and called him repeatedly. A colleague hooked up a tape recorder up to Lang's phone and captured a conversation between Lang and Simpson in which Lang reportedly pleaded with Simpson to throw the gun out of the window for the sake of his mother and children. Simpson apologized for not turning himself in earlier in the day and responded that he was the only one who deserved to get hurt and was just going to go with Nicole. He asked Lang to let him get into the house and said, I need the gun for me. Cowling's voice overheard in the recording after the Bronco had arrived at Simpson's home, surrendered by police, pleading with Simpson to surrender at the end of the of the chase peacefully. Los Angeles streets emptied and drink orders stopped at bars as people watched on television. Every television showed showed the chase. ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN, and local news outlets interrupted regular scheduled programming to cover the incident, watched by an estimated 95 million viewers. Only 90 million had watched that year's Super Bowl. While NBC continued coverage of Game 5 of the NBA Finals between the New York Knicks and Houston Rockets at Madison Square Garden, the game appeared in a small box in the corner while Tom Brokaw covered the chase. The chase was covered live by ABC anchors Peter Jennings and Barbara Walters on behalf of the network's five news magazines, which achieved some of the highest ever ratings that week. The chase was broadcast internationally with Gascon relatives in France and China seeing him on television. Thousands of spectators and onlookers overpassed along the route waiting for the white Bronco, cheering, go OJ. Simpson reportedly demanded to be allowed to speak to his mother before he would surrender. The chase ended at 8 p.m. at the Brentwood Estate 50 miles later. 50 miles later, where his son, Jason, ran out of the house, gesturing wildly, and 27 SWAT officers awaited. After remaining in the Bronco for about 45 minutes, Simpson exited at 8.50 with a friend, frame family photo and went inside for about an hour. Police spokesman stated that he spoke to his mother and drank a glass of orange juice, causing reporters to laugh. Shapiro arrived and Simpson surrendered to authorities a few minutes later in 
and the Bronco police found $8,000 in cash, a change of clothing, a loaded three, 357 Magnum, a white uh, United States passport, family pictures, and a disguise kit with a fake goatee and mustache. Simpson was booked at Park Center and taken to Men's Central Jail. Callings was booked on suspicion of harboring a fugitive and held on a $250,000 bond. The Bronco chase, the suicide note, and the items found the Bronco were not presented as evidence in the criminal trial. Trial, Mark, Marshall Clark consented that such evidence did not imply guilt, yet uh, yet defended her decision, citing the public reaction to the chase and the suicide note as proof the trial had been compromised by Simpson's celebrity status. Most of the public, including Simpson's friend Al Michaels, interpreted his actions as an admission of guilt, yet thousands of people encouraged him to flee prosecution and were sympathetic to his feelings of guilt. And of course, there was a preliminary hearing um, for OJ, but the main trial... Of course, Simpson wanted to prosecute early, but that didn't happen. District Attorney Gil Garcetti elected to file charges in downtown L.A. as opposed to Santa Monica, in which jurisdiction uh, the crimes took place. The L.A. Superior Court then decided to hold the trial in downtown Los Angeles instead of Santa Monica due to safety issues at the Santa Monica courthouse. The decision may have affected the trial's outcome because it resulted in a jury pool that was less educated had lower incomes, and contained more African-Americans. Richard Gabriel, a jury consultant for Simpson, wrote that more educated jurors with higher incomes are, are more likely to accept the validity of DNA evidence and the argument that domestic violence is a prelude to murder. Gabriel notes that the African-Americans, unlike other minorities, are far more likely to, re to be receptive to the claim of racial-motivated fraud by the police. In October 1994, Justice Lanch Ito started interviewing 304 prospective jurors, each of whom had to fill out a 75-page questionnaire. On November 3rd, three, uh, 12 jurors were seated with 12 alternates over the course of the trial. Ten were dismissed for a wide variety of reasons. Only four of the original jurors remain on the final panel. According to media reports, Clark believed women, regardless of race, would sympathize with domestic violence aspect of the case and connect with Nicole personally. On the other hand, the defense research suggested that black women would not be, would not be sympathetic to Nicole, who was white, because of tensions about interracial marriages. Both sides accepted a disproportionate number of female juries from an original jury pool of 40% white, 28% black, 17% Hispanic, and 15% um, Asian. The final jury for the trial had 10 women and ten, men, 10 women, two men, of whom nine were black, two were white, and one Hispanic. The jury was sequestered for 265 days, the most in American history. It broke the previous record with more than a month left to go. On April 5, 1995, juror Jeanette Harris was dismissed because Judge Ito learned she had failed to disclose an incident of domestic abuse. Afterwards, Harris gave an interview and accused deputies of racism and claimed the jurors are dividing themselves along racial lines. Ito then met with the jurors, all denied Harris's allegations of racial tension among themselves. The following day, it dismissed uh, three deputies anyway, which upset the jurors that didn't com uh, complain because the, the dismissal appeared to lend credence to Harris's allegations, which they all denied. On April 21st, 13 of the 18 jurors refused to come to court until they spoke with Ito about it. Ito then ordered them to court, and 13 13 protesters responded by wearing all black and refusing to come out of the jury box upon arrival. The media described the incident as a jury revolt and the, pro the protesters wearing all black as resembling a funeral procession. And we'll be back with the prosecution's case in just a moment. This is the Stu Effect right here on Anchor and Spotify. And we are back on the Stu Effect 
the take on life, O.J. Simpson. Now we're at the prosecution's case, and the two lead prosecutors were Deputy District Attorneys Marshall Clark and Christopher Darden. Clark was designated as the lead prosecutor, and Darden became Clark's co-counsel. Prosecutors Hank Goldberg and William Hodgman, who was successfully uh, prosecuted high-profile cases in the past, assisted Clark and Darden. Two prosecutors were DNA experts, experts Rockney Harmon and George Woody Clark, were brought in to present the DNA evidence in the case and were assisted by prosecutor Lisa Kahn. The theory, the prosecution argued that domestic violence within the Simpson and Brown marriage culminated in her murder. Simpson's history of abuse, abusing Nicole resulted in their divorce and in pleading guilty to one count of domestic violence in 1989. One, on the night of the murder, Simpson attended a dance recital for his daughter and was poorly angry with Nicole because of a black dress that she wore, which he says was tight. Simpson's then-girlfriend, Paula Barberi, wanted to attend the recital with Simpson, but he did not invite her. After the recital, Simpson returned home to a voicemail from Barberi ending their relationship. Simpson then drove over to Nicole Brown's home to reconcile their relationship. As a result, and when Nicole refused, Simpson killed her in a final act of control. Ronald Goldman then came up on the scene and was murdered as well. The prosecution opened its case by calling LAPD dispatcher Sharon Gilbert and playing a four-minute 911 call from Nicole Brown Simpson on January 1st, 1989, in which she expressed fear that Simpson would physically harm her, and Simpson himself is even heard in the background yelling at her and possibly hitting her as well. The prosecution planned to present 62 separate uh, incidents of domestic violence, including three previously unknown incidents Brown had documented in several letters she had written and placed in a bank, a bank safety deposit box. Judge Ito denied the defense's motion to suppress the incidents of domestic violence, but only allowed witnesses' accounts to be pres presented to the jury because Simpson's Sixth Amendment rights. The letters Nicole Brown had written and the statements she made to friends and family were ruled inadmissible as hearsay because Brown was dead and unable to cross be cross-examined. Despite this, the prosecution had... Witnesses for 44 separate incidents they plan to present to the jury. However, the prosecution dropped the domestic violence portion of their case on June 20th, 1995. Marshall Clark stated that it was because they believed the DNA evidence against Simpson was insurmountable, but the media speculated it was because of the comments made by dismissed juror Jeanette Harris. Christopher Darden later confirmed that to be true, Harris was dismissed on April 6th because she failed to disclose that she was a victim of domestic violence from her ex-husband. But afterwards, Harris gave an interview and called the evidence of, Simps of Simpson's abuse on Nicole a whole lot of nothing and also said that doesn't mean he's guilty of murder. The dismissal of Simpson's abuse's behavior uh, after uh, behavior from a female juror was who was also a victim of such abuse by her husband convinced the prosecution that the jury was not receptive to domestic the domestic violence argument. After the verdict, the jurors called the domestic violence portion of the case a waste of time. Shapiro, Dershowitz, and Ullman later admitted they believed that a race the race played a factor in, in the jury's dismissal of Nicole Brown's abuse by Simpson. The defense retained renowned advocate for victims of domestic abuse, Dr. Lenore Walker. Cochran said that she would testify that Simpson doesn't fit the profile of an abuser that would murder his spouse. Dr. Walker's colleagues were appalled by her decision to defend Simpson and accused her of betraying her advocacy for $250,000 retainer. Dr. Walker was dropped from the witness list for tactical reasons after she submitted a report on the case. In it, she opinions that the statistics from Dershowitz that, that of the 2 million incidents of abuse per year, only 2,000 victims are actually murdered by their spouses as being misleading because Brown was already dead. The relevant statistic was 
<clears throat> murder spouses were also victims of abuse, where percentage of them were murdered by the current or ex-husband when she reported the murder was 8.3%. They dropped her from the witness list. The revelation of Simpson's abuse of Nicole is credited with turning public opinion against him. The public sh shock at the reason why Dr. Wecker was dropped from the defense witness list is credited with transforming public opinion on spousal abuse from a private family matter to a serious public issue. Now, the, 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 the prosecution timeline, Los Angeles County uh, Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Lakshman uh, Sathvayagiswaran testified on June 14, 1995, that Brown's time of death was estimated between 10 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. Cato Kalin testified on March 22, 1995, that he saw, last saw Simpson at 9.36 that evening. Simpson was not seen again until 10.54 when he answered the intercom at the front door for the limousine driver, Alan Park. Simpson had no alibi for approximately an hour and 18 minutes, during which time the murders took place. Alan Park testified on March 28, 1995, that he arrived at Simpson's home at 10.25 on the night of the murders and stopped at the Rockingham entrance. Simpson's Bronco was not there. He then drove to the Ashford entrance and rang the intercom three times, getting no answer starting at 10.40. At approximately 10.50, he saw a tall African-American shadowy figure resembling Simpson approaching the door before aborting towards the southern walkway that leads to Kalen's bungalow. Park's testimony was significant because it explained the location of the glove found at Simpson's home. The blood trail from the Bronco to the front door was easily understood, but the glove was found on the other side of the house. Park said the shadowy figure initially approached the front door before heading down the southern walkway, which leads to where the glove was found by Furman. The prosecution believed that Simpson had driven his Bronco to and from Brown's home to commit the murders, saw that Park was there and aborted his attempt to enter through the front door and tried to enter through the back instead. He panicked and made the sounds of that Kalen heard when he realized that the security system would not let him enter through the rear entrance. He then discarded the glove, came back, and went through the front door. During cross-examination, Park conceded that he could not identify the figure, but he s said that he saw the person enter the front door, and afterwards Simpson answered and said he was home alone, but he was calling a friend. Park conceded that he did not notice any cuts on Simpson's left hand, but added, I shook his right hand, not his left. So much... Uh, DNA evidence with the blood and hair and the fiber. There was a shoe print analysis for a Bruno Magali shoe, which um, OJ owned. And now the defense case, Simpson had hired a high-profile defense, uh, high-profile defense lawyer, initially led by Robert Shapiro, who was previously a civil right, a civil lawyer known for settling, and then subsequently by Johnny Cochran, who at that point was known for police brutality and civil rights cases. The team included noted defense attorney F. Lee Bailey, Robert Kardashian, Harvard appeals lawyer Alan Dershowitz, his student Robert uh, Blasier, and dean of Santa Clara University School of Law, Gerald Ullman. Assistant Cochran were Carl E. Douglas and Sean Hawley. Barry Schick and Peter Dufield were also hired. They headed the Innocence Project and specialized in DNA evidence. Simpson's defense would have said to have cost between uh, U.S. Uh, $3 million and $6 million. The media dubbed the great group of talent the attorney, ouch, the dream team. The defense team's reasonable doubt theory was summarized as compromised, contaminated, corrupt, and in opening, sta in opening statements, they argued that the DNA evidence against the Simpson was compromised by the mishandling of criminalist Dennis Fung and Andrea Mazzola during the collection phase of evidence gather gathering, and the 100% of the real killer's DNA had vanished from the evidence sample. The evidence was then contaminated in the LAPD crime lab by criminals calling Yamuchi and criminalists calling Yamuchi and the Simpson DNA from the reference vial was transferred to all 
but three exhibits. The remaining three exhibits were planted by the police and thus corrupted by police fraud. The defense also questioned the timeline, claiming the murders happened around 11 that night. Dr. Hoots Zenga testified on January 14, 1995, that Simpson was not physically capable of carrying out the murders due to chronic arthritis and old football injuries. During cross-examination, the prosecution produced an exercise video that Simpson had made a few weeks before the murders titled O.J. Simpson Minimum Maintenance Fitness for Men, which demonstrated that Simpson was anything but frail. Dr. Zenga admitted afterwards that Simpson could have committed the murders if he was in the throes of an adrenaline rush. Dr. Michael Baden, a forensic pathologist, testified on March 10th uh, on uh, 1995 and claimed those murders happened closer to 11 p.m., which is when Simpson had an alibi. He said that Brown was still conscious and standing when her throat was cut and that Goldman was standing and fighting his assailant for 10 minutes with a lacerated jugular vein. After the trial, Baden admitted his claim of Goldman's long struggle was inaccurate and then, and then that testified for Simpson was a, testifying for Simpson was a mistake. Critics claimed that Baden knowingly gave false testimony in order to collect a $100,000 retainer. Because the week before he testified, Dr. Jerris admitted that Goldman's blood was in Simpson's Bronco, despite Goldman never having an opportunity within his lifetime to be in the Bronco. Barry Schick and Peter Neufeld argued that the results of the DNA test were not, were not reliable because of the police because the police were sloppy in collecting and preventing it from the crime scene. And the police conspiracy allegation. On, the only defense, um, the defense initially only claimed that three exhibits were planted by the police, but eventually argued that virtually all of the blood evidence against Simpson was planted in the police conspiracy. They accused prison nurse Thano Paradis, criminalist Dennis Fung, Andrew Mazzola, and Colin Yamich, and detectives Phil Van Adder and Mark Furman in participating in a plot to frame Simpson. And in closing arguments, Cochran called Furman and Van Adder twins of deception, and told the jury to remember Van Adder as the man who carried the blood and Furman as the man who found the glove. The defense alleged that Simpson's blood on the back gate at the Bundy crime scene was planted by the police. The blood on the back gate was collected on J July 3, 1995, rather than June 13th, the day after the murders. The volume of DNA on the blood was significantly higher than the other blood evidence collected on June 13th. The prosecutor responded by showing that a different photograph that showed the blood was present on the back gate. On June 13th, Officer Robert Risk was the officer to the first officer to the crime scene and one who pointed out blood on the back gate to Furman, who documented it in his notes that night. Multiple officers testified under oath that the blood was present on the back gate the night of the murders. Barry Schick alleged the police had two had to plant a uh, twice plant evidence uh, victim's blood inside Simpson's Bronco. Of course, there's the socks. The defense alleged that the the he had planted bloody a sock on the socks found in Simpson's bedroom. The last exhibit was planted was the bloody glove found in Simpson's property by Detective Mark Furman. Unlike the sock at the back gate, the defense proved no physical or eyewitness evidence that supported their claim that the prosecution could then refute. And then during cross-examination, Furman denied they had used the word the N-word to describe African Americans in the ten years prior to his testimony. A few months later, the defense discovered audio tapes of Furman reportedly using the word 41 times in total, eight years before the murder. The tapes were made between 1985 and 1994 by screenwriter Laura Hart McKinney, who interviewed Furman at length for a Hollywood screenplay she was writing on women police officers. The Furman tapes became the cornerstone of defense 
case that Furman's testimony lacked credibility. Clark called the tapes the big, red, biggest red herring there ever was. After McKinney was forced to hand over the tapes to defense, Furman said he asked the prosecution for a redirect to explain the context of those tapes, but the prosecution and his fellow police officers abandoned him after Ido played the, uh, the audio tapes in open court for the public to hear. The public reaction to the tapes was explosive and compared uh, to the video of the Rodney King beating in the last year. Furman says he instantly became a pariah. At the after the trial, Furman said that he was not a racist and apologized for his previous language, saying he was play-acting when he made the tapes and had been asked to be as dramatic as possible and promised $10,000 fee if the screenplay was produced. Many of his minority former co-workers expressed support for him. On December 6, 1995, Furman was called back to the witness stand by the defense after the prosecution refused to redirect him to answer questions. The jury was absent but the exchange was televised. Furman, with his lawyer standing by his side and facing the possibility of being charged with perjury, was instructed by his attorney to invoke the Fifth Amendment to avoid self-incrimination to two consecutive questions he was asked. His attorney, Ullman, asked Furman if it was intention to plead the Fifth and all the questions. And Furman's attorney instructed him to reply yes. Ullman then briefly spoke with the other members of the defense and said he had just one more question. Do you plan or manufacture any evidence in this case? Following his during instruction from replied, I choose to assert my Fifth Amendment privilege, and that's what killed the case. And fears grew that race riots similar to the riots of 92 would erupt across L.A. and the rest of the country if Simpson were convicted of the murders. As a result, all Los Angeles police officers were put on 12-hour shifts. The police argued for more than 100 police arranged for more than 100 officers on horseback to surround the Los Angeles County Court on the day the verdict was announced. In case of rioting by the crowd, President Clinton was briefed on security measures if rioting occurred nationwide. And the only testimony the jury reviewed was the, the limo driver park. At 10.07 a.m. on Tuesday, October 3, 1995, Simpson was acquitted of murder, acquitted of both counts of murder. The jury arrived at the verdict by 3 p.m. on October 2nd after four hours of deliberation, but it postponed the announcement. After the verdict was read, jurors number nine, 44-year-old Lionel Cryer, gave Simpson a black power Raised fist salute. The New York Times reported that Cure was a former member of the Revolution Nationalist Black Panther Party that prosecutors had inexplicably left on the panel. And that led to media coverage. That led to a special uh, called The Missing Evidence, where Bill Deere, investigator, with the help of Derek Lavasser and uh, Chris Mahandi, uh, tried to prove there was another theory to the OJ Simpson case, a missing evidence that OJ's son, Jason Simpson, might have done it. Um, and of course, after that, OJ was uh, jailed for stealing from his memorabilia because they didn't want the Goldmans to get it. And of course, if you want to watch more on OJ, take a look, just look at the and get it online. The People versus OJ Simpson, starring Cuba Cuba Gooding Jr. as OJ Simpson. Robert Shapiro is played by John Travolta. Of course, uh, Johnny Cochran uh, is being played by a famous actor. And so is Christopher Darden, the one from This Is Us, and uh, Sarah Paulson as Marsha Clark. And uh, the guy that plays Chim, Chimney on 9-11 as, ja as the Judge Lance Ito. And we, of course, F. Lee Bailey, played by Nathan Lane fantastically. Uh, we will... And uh, that is all today for the Stew Effect. 
Reminder, Thursday, December 31st, our um, look back at 2020, our 20 recap, 2020 recap on New Year's Eve. And we will, uh, don't forget about that. We're going to give you an update on the football score with four minutes and 40 seconds to go in the fourth quarter. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are destroying the Detroit Lions 47-7. And uh, there are two games on tap today. The San Francisco 49ers take on the Arizona Cardinals in Arizona. And then at 8.15, the Miami Dolphins will join, will play in Las Vegas and Legion Stadium to take on the Las Vegas Raiders. So that's all the time we have. We're going to leave you now with a great Christmas um, rendition of Winter Wonderland by the one and only Bing Crosby. So this is Stuart Myers saying Merry Christmas again. Happy holidays. We'll see you back on Monday for the Stew Effect. And don't forget, once again, the Stew Effects 2020 recap, Thursday, December 31st, right here on Anchor FM and Spotify and where else you listen to podcasts. This is Stuart Myers for the Stew Effect saying ciao for now. Sleigh bells ring Are you listening? In the lane Snow is glistening A beautiful sight We're happy tonight Walking in a winter wonderland Gone away Is the bluebird Here to stay Is a new bird He sings a love song As we go along Walking in a winter wonderland In the meadow we can build a snowman And pretend that he is Parson Brown He'll say, are you married? We'll say, no man But you can do the job when you're in town Later on we'll conspire As we dream by the fire To face unafraid Plans that we've made Walking in a winter wonderland Sleigh bells ring Are you listening? In the lane Snow is glistening A beautiful sight We're happy tonight Walking in a winter wonderland Gone away is the bluebird Here to stay is a new bird he sings a love song as we go along, walking in a winter wonderland. In the meadow we can build a snowman and pretend that he's a circus clown. We'll have lots of fun with Mr. Snowman. Yes, until the other kiddies knock him down. Later on we'll conspire as we dream by the fire. Face unafraid the plans that we've made Walking in a winter wonderland Walking in a winter wonderland